Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Friday, March 23rd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There was a headline today that uh, read like this, breaking news, President Trump signed the spending bill averting a shutdown hours after threatening to veto it, but he called the bill ridiculous. He uh, insulted it further than that here from uh, a little bit of a signing, a, a signing ceremony against his will. But I say to Congress, I will never sign another bill like this again. I'm not going to do it again. Now, earlier in the day, there was a headline President Trump threatens to veto the spending bill. And for a second, um, let's say uh, less than a second, about a nanosecond, I was like, really? They worked that out? I'm not too pleased with the bill, but I had no idea they were going to veto it. Mick Mulvaney had assured the White House was behind it. And sure enough, he didn't veto it. Now, I hate to play the if it had been any other president game, he acts like no other president. But just take something that wasn't even news, something that probably didn't upset many people, some action or fake, vague, empty threat that we all knew to dismiss. If Barack Obama, really any president, had done that, just float an idea that I'm going to go back on my word and veto this bill and plunge the government into chaos, it would quite literally be the most dramatic, chaotic thing he ever did in his entire president. I'm not going to say it was, it would be, it would have been the worst thing, depending on what you think of his policies, but it would be the thing that he did that was the most uncharacteristically rash in his entire eight-year presidency. This, the empty threat to veto a bill that everyone had agreed on, this barely reached anyone's radar. Think about the entire week of what the president did. Over the weekend, he fought with and called out Mueller by name. There's no equivalent because most presidents don't have special counsels investigating them. I guess Bill Clinton did, but he didn't have Twitter at the time. On Monday, he gave a speech saying that there should be death penalty, the death penalty for drug dealers. You know, very few in the media even bothered to point out, yeah, this would be blatantly unconstitutional, Kennedy versus Louisiana. The court held that the death penalty should not be expanded to instances where the victim's life was not taken. I mean, oftentimes when a policy idea is circulated, you could check it against what the Supreme Court might say. This is just looking at a Supreme Court decision and saying, yes, I shall violate that. And I think rightly so, it wasn't given too much credence. But again, that would be the sort of thing that in any other presidency, people would be going bonkers about. On Tuesday, he congratulated Russia even though his top staff told him not to, and then top staff leaked their displeasure. On Wednesday, a trade tariff that every economist 
in America, except one, the one whispering in his ear, says it's a terrible idea. On Thursday, Dowd and McMaster resign. And today, he signed this $1.3 million spending bill, and there was the fake veto threat. So what gives? What has to give with all this crazy drama? Well, did you know, you probably do, you follow the news, that there was a, uh, a bad police shooting in Sacramento. A guy had a cell phone, it was supposedly mistaken as a gun, and he was shot 20 times in his backyard. In the age of Obama, this would be the biggest news story. And in the age of Obama, we would be saying, my God, Obama isn't that good on race relations. Obviously, race relations, if you want to call it that, haven't improved. I mean, they've gotten much worse under Trump, a president who 57% of Americans think is a racist. But there's so much else going on that we don't even notice it. I was thinking about the What of the idea that Obama was bad on race relations? And towards the end of his presidency, there were all these polls saying that, well, the uh, New York Times put out one saying that just 15% of Americans said his presidency has brought whites and blacks closer together. 47% think that it made no difference. And 34% thought it pushed whites and blacks further apart. I mean, there's this idea in the air as reported by some polling that for all the promise of Obama, he didn't really do much on race relations. Well, now, now 49% of Americans say race relations are worse than they were a year ago. And like I said, 57% of adults, including eight in 10 blacks, three quarters of Hispanics, and almost half of whites think their president is a racist, and we can't even pay attention to that. It's not as if police shootings have gone away. We just don't have the bandwidth to pay attention. I mean, some of us do, but not the average person who is of a good heart, who would like to think that this is a problem if they didn't have to worry about every other problem in the world. I mean, racial progress in America, it's an essential thing that we have to work on. It's a reckoning. It's justice. It's one of the great challenges of America. I've said that Trump's malevolence has been tempered by incompetence, shot through with mendacity. But even if some of the worst things that he may do uh, will be avoided just because he's so bad at doing everything, think about all the things that America needs to do that it's just never going to get to because Trump is president. He is at best throwing the car into reverse. So what's that do? It just grinds the engine to a halt. We have many strides to make, and we know it. We may be suspected in the back of our minds, but it's there. But there it stays, in the back of our minds, because there are tariffs and drama and dangerous advisors. So something like police shootings, which were at the forefront of the Obama administration, for the very reason that it was a better, calmer administration, and we could pay attention to issues like police shootings, because Trump is so much worse, and so much worse even on issues of race relations, We don't even pay attention to police shootings. Race in America has been made to seem like a second order problem for a lot of people. Even as Trump loses, his white nationalistic agenda wins. He promised a return to the old way. He certainly can't make that happen. But what he can do is deny America the progress it deserves. He does what he can to preserve the status quo, substandard though it is. On the show today... It's an Antan twig in the spiel, but first a fantastic interview with Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, executive producers of The Americans, which is back, baby, deep undercover Russian spies, Philip and Elizabeth, live their lives in the D.C. suburbs as Gorbachev ascends to power back home. How will it work out? Will the good guys win? Well, who are the good guys? I'll tell you who. It's Joe and Joel. You'll hear for yourself. They're great guys.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields are the showrunners, executive producers of the FX series, The Americans. It is, in my opinion, the best show currently on television, Fox and Friends notwithstanding. And the good news is that it is on television or will be on television beginning March 28th. The creator, Joe Weisberg, the executive producer, Joel Fields, they're with me now. Hello, guys. Thanks for coming in. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Question one. Are your main characters anti-heroes? No. We do not think of them as anti-heroes from the very beginning. We said, these guys are heroes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're heroes for the other side, but they're absolutely heroes. Did you do anything to really think about or study how to make bad guys sympathetic? Because there seem to be some obvious tricks, you know, make them roguish, make them uh, make them secretly good guys, or you know what their inner motivations are. But what were some insights you had? Because these are these are enemies of America, and they're doing Whoa, immoral actions. Hang on, go ahead. We don't think of them that way. That's probably the first thing. We don't think they're bad guys. We thought a lot about well, if these were CIA guys in Moscow. Mm-hmm. What would we expect them to do? What would we want them to do? Wouldn't we want Elizabeth to stay true to the cause, to be faithful, to do what she had to do to sort of protect our way of life? So in our minds, they're steadfast, true, decent. Yes, they get carried away. Yes, they do awful things sometimes, but so do American soldiers. So do American intelligence officers. So to make them sympathetic we uh, to us, we just had to be honest and be true. And then we figured we'd see yeah. if the audience would buy into that if they did. We'd be okay. If now, they didn't, we'd be screwed. Now, you asked whether we had any tricks in order to achieve that. Uh, well, these are called techniques, attitude. I think, on, well, on premium cable. Fair, yeah, fair, fair enough. So <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two of our techniques. So they were really the same techniques deployed in different seasons. In season one, every story that we wrote, we took a day where we stepped back and we retold it as if it were the story of deep cover CIA officers in the USSR at that time in history fighting for freedom liberty, and all the causes that we believe in. And if everything those officers would do on behalf of the cause of justice, America, democracy, if they would do all those things in those circumstances, then Philip and Elizabeth could do it here. And in season three, when Elizabeth and Philip were grappling with whether or not they would tell Paige and in season four after they did, we talked a lot about the American South, right as the Civil War was happening. Mm-hmm. And we imagined if, if you were a family and you were living undercover, disguised as plantation owners, mm-hmm. but you were there because you wanted to fight slavery and you had a daughter, would you want her to go into cotillions and believing in slavery or would you want to at some point tell her the truth and get her on the cause of freedom? So those were some techniques we deployed. That's a great technique. And it leads me to a question. Would this show work if it were that scenario you put out there? Americans in Russia undercover, pretending to be Russians, what would change and what would appeal to an American audience about that? Well, now the show is 85% English and 50% Russian. That show would be 85% (laughs) Russian and 15% English. Right. Unless you did the thing like in Hunt for Red October, where all of a sudden your Russian speaking became English speaking. The Russians are doing that show, by the way, now. They have that show in Russia, but it's it's a comedy. And it's for the Russian audience, not the American audience. (laughs) And it's very popular. People like it and it's supposed to be good. 
a great tension of the Americans, your show, is the seductive power of America. And how do you, how would you possibly translate something like the seductive power of Russia? How that part of it, I don't know how you would try to get to that part of it, where one part of the married couple is kind of falling in love or falling for this country. I think you could do it in Soviet times. It would be really an interesting trick is you'd have to have one of the characters start to feel and believe that there was a kind of solidarity, that there was actually something to communism after all. In a way, I I think that's happened to me, and maybe it's happened to both of us, that we've started to open up to the idea that this big, bad specter of evil communism that we were always taught about from from the day that we were born in America was exaggerated and maybe even not true to a certain degree, that there was something good over there. How would the show change, or would it work at all, if the dynamic between the couple were gender reversed. So if the male in the relationship was ideologically rigid and was the one most dedicated to the cause and was harder core, and it was the woman who was being seduced by openness, liberty in America. Well, that was a more obvious way to do it. So you could do it that way, but I think that's what people would expect. I think one of the interesting ways about doing it this way was that it's just more surprising. It's more interesting to see Elizabeth in that role and Philip as sort of the more softer one. It just kind of defies expectations. So do you think that Elizabeth is someone who really knows herself? Or is this a woman who grew up in a very austere Soviet system and probably doesn't believe in psychotherapy? We used to, uh, used to still sometimes play the game of who's the least self-aware character in the Americans. Um, none of our characters are self-aware, really, almost at all. But there is a side of Elizabeth, when you say, that knows herself very well. You know, people would sometimes say, well, she's just an ideologue. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's our conception of her at all. Our, our conception of her is that, yes, she grew up in a certain way with a, a rigid set of beliefs and ideas, but she's thought about those things very deeply and she her, her convictions about her country and what she's fighting for and what she believes in are carefully thought through and very deeply felt. And that is a form of knowing yourself. Now, OK, there are levels on which she has never been able to think about herself and kind of the deeper layers on which people's motivations are built. She's never gotten there. And Philip has started to get there yeah. and has progressed further than her along that path. And that's one of the greatest tensions of the show. If you were their boss at the KGB, though, what Elizabeth is doing, never examining the deeper motivations, is perfect. That's, what you, that's, yeah. that's, that's what, what you want. That's what you want. better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What is the big file? What is the big KGB file that was released? The Matrokin, the Matrokin archives. archives. The Matrokin archives. And if people don't know, this was sort of the blueprint of how they did it, how they tur- how they it's all in embedded there. illegals, and you got a lot of ideas, plot ideas, and insight from those files. Well, the whole marriage to Martha came out of there. Yeah, yeah. So in those files, do they talk about the psychology of the agents and how to handle the awareness and the awake uh, possible no, awakening? Nothing of the like that is in there. That's that's more stuff that we had to sort of figure out on on our own. I mean, there is to some degree in some of the after the collapse of the Soviet Union, some uh, former KGB officers wrote uh, autobiographies and told their stories. And you can get a little bit in there. But most of that is stuff we had to sort of surmise. So the fact of, oh, so the marriage to Martha was this great plot device, a, uh, a secretary at the FBI, and Philip marries her. 
actually happened, he infiltrated and married these women secretaries at federal agencies. Actually in happened. In Europe. It happened in Europe. In Europe. I think was, what happened is one there was one spy, they called him a Romeo, yeah. who, uh, who was deployed and he was targeted a secretary and seduced her and then married her. And they got so much intelligence out of that, they started a program that they called the Secretary's Offensive. Oh. So that's, but it's that's brilliant, right? You can yeah, make that up. Yeah, yeah. Writers couldn't think of that. I know they have like bosses day and secretaries day. I want secretaries offensive. <laughs> I want the mug. But so as you work, you don't need more details or you don't want more details. Like that's the jumping off point and you could fill in the emotions from there. Oh, well, we would love more details because, <laughs> you know, who was it who said good writers borrow and great writers steal? Also, lazy writers steal. You said so it just that, now. No, You're the uh, one who no, uh, I stole that. that. I definitely stole that from <laughs> someone. But we would love, the, the, as much detail as we can get, we will use. We'll give you an example. The whole execution of Nina mm-hmm. in season four grew out of research that came to us from Sergei Kostin, who's our consultant in Russia and gives us a lot of great detail on the show. His books are fantastic. He wrote a wonderful book called Farewell, right, yeah. Joe? Mm-hmm. Um, the Farewell the, Dossier. The, Fare- the Farewell Dossier, which everyone should read. Incredible, true spy story, also really, really human. But all the details of how she was executed down to the burlap cloth that she was wrapped in and taken away yeah. came from him. Yeah. And that was great. We love that detail. But with regards to something like the relationship with Martha, that sort of detail doesn't exist. So you got to make it up. Yeah. I think on one of the great June Thomas podcasts that I listened to where they talk with you guys or members of your staff about every episode, Masha Gessen, she was a consultant on your show, right? She was a translator. Yeah. And didn't you guys debate if that way of executing was more or less moral than the way we do it, which is, you know, three years worth of appeal, but you know when your execution date is? Well, we haven't. I don't know if we debated it so much as we posited that it's better. Yeah. Because she did. Was, she thought no. Really? Yeah. No, I don't remember that part. Yeah. You know, she thought less, less moral. Well, I could say definitely less moral when it comes to the families, because the way the, the families would find out is they would send out no notification, absolutely nothing. So you'd show up to visit your loved one. They would send you to another department that would send you to another department, yeah. and eventually they'd send you to the records office and they'd hand you the death certificate. But if you, and but there'd if be no and there'd be no no place to go. But if you're the guy being shot, plot. you know, instead of sitting on death row for ten years waiting yeah. to find out what's gonna happen to you. I think Sartre's case, I think Sartre said that's one of the greatest forms of torture is horrible. to tell someone well, I mean, the exact date of their death. Horrible. Yeah. So yeah. in this case, what the, what they did was they just they told you that the sentence had been passed and literally half a second later shot you in the back of the head. But they didn't do that to be cruel. They did that to spare you the pain and suffering of not knowing what was gonna happen. Yeah. It was and, designed to be humane. And, and in fact, what we're doing the And research, also may I interrupt, it also has the benefit of saving costs of the appellate division. <laughs> but you know what, joking aside. Really enough, they had their version of the appellate they, division. They did. It, it actually, they, they actually had to go through a long process. They, they, their process happened. But it just, right, the it prisoner happened kind didn't of know about it. Yeah. Well, it also happened No, backwards. the prisoner could file an appeal. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, but a lot of, it, it a lot was, of that there's process. more judicial process there than you, than you would have thought. It, it weirdly, was surprising. A lot of their process happened before the arrest. Is, where, is how it would happen. And they, in Sergei's book, it's a really interesting thing. They had a lot of evidence that this guy was a spy, but they wouldn't arrest him. They wouldn't arrest him and do the show trial mm-hmm. until they had enough evidence so that they knew beyond a reasonable doubt in their view. And then they'd arrest you, do the show trial, and, and put a bullet in your head. So the last thing I want to ask you about is just the fact that it's a period show and how you execute it and what your philosophy is. 
So I think that there are certain period movies and period shows which are pretty much like minstrelsy, right? You set a show in the 70s, the kid, of course, has a Star Wars t-shirt. I lived in the 70s, mostly we didn't wear Star Wars t-shirts. On the other, I don't know what exactly on the other side is. I think that a lot of people think on the other side of that is this extreme authenticity, this fetishization of period details to the point where people will wear the underwear from that period, even if they're not taking their pants off on the screen. How do you guys <laughs> think about how much 80s to put into it, where to pull back, how, because, you know, you and I, we're both alive there. So what's how, the calculation? How long do we have on this podcast? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So uh, let's let's address the underwear yes. first, because I actually think it's a funny joke, but I think it says something about how we make basic cable, which is we have to think really hard about what is screen and what is what is on screen and what isn't on screen. So we we can't spend money on underwear. We spend our time and creative focus on what the audience is going to see. I hope we don't fetishize it, but we are obsessed with the period details. It's also interesting you talk about everybody wearing a Star Wars shirt. The first thing I remember us talking about with our first costume designer was that it was really important to us that everybody not be dressed as if they had gone shopping in the year in which the show was yeah, set. Yeah, because the shirt that I'm wearing from years, 2014. Exactly. People have, you know, I, you know, you, you have, you have things you've, you've worn for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the same is the case with set dressing and the same is the case with cars. So the world needs to look kind of like a, like a comet with a long trail mm. of props and objects and clothing and hairstyles. All, all that's really important. We also, you want to, you want to tell them about the calendar? We keep a very long calendar on the wall uh, in what we call the vault, mm-hmm. which is a one of the one of the rooms we write in, and it has uh, every day of the season for each season a new one goes up, and we track every story day of the show. So every time you're watching a day on the show, we know what the actual date was that takes place, and we carefully track every day and the time mm-hmm. of every scene. And we're very incredibly, insanely, mentally ill-level fastidious about it. So, for example, if you if the Jennings are at home and the television is on during a scene, we know what date and what time it was and we'll only put a show on that was actually on at that time of, on that date, which creates a lot of problems for us because if it's Thursday night at 8 p.m. and there was nothing interesting or good on at that time. Yeah. But the next day or the day before, there was the perfect, interesting period show that everyone would love to see. We won't use it. Yeah. And so it creates problems. Well, this season's uh, 1987, right? Yeah. So the Cosby's Thursday at 8. Can't do that. <laughs> pulls, pulls the viewer Can't do out that. of it. Can't do that. Well, we're very careful about th- But the whole thing point you're making in general is about how to not pull the viewer out. Yeah, If exactly. you have too much period detail, the viewer feels like you're trying too hard yep. and it pulls them out of the world. Mm-hmm. All we want in the whole universe is for the viewer to be lost in the story and feel like it's real and not feel what we sometimes call the authorial hand yeah. because that breaks the reality of it. And I think that's the key is that it's not a matter of tonnage, really. It's a matter of... It being essential to the characters and story. We did an entire episode about the movie the day after, and a chunk of it was our characters just watching the movie the day after. Uh, and to us, that didn't feel like a period reference. It felt like what our characters were going through at right, that time. Right. Would you want to work as closely with a collaborator as you have each other on your next projects? As long as it's him. Yeah, yeah we're definitely. We're staying him. together. Yeah. You are? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Is it going to draw upon your expertise? In the CIA, as an ex-CIA guy? I think we're we're interested in moving on to some other genre. That was a lot of spying. Yeah. Six years of spying. 
Joel Fields, Joe Weisberg are the uh, showrunners, as they say, the executive producers of the FX series, The Americans. Episode one of season six is Wednesday. You have enough time to watch every single episode between now and then, (laughs) if that's all you do, and I would recommend it. Amazon Prime. Amazon, there you go. That's a plug. All right, thank you guys. (laughs) Thanks Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Mike. Great. And now the spiel, it's an Antan twig, our name for a three-week period of time. You have your fortnight. We've improved on this. We found a word. It's called Antan twig. 21 days. That's how long it's been since the last Antan twig. We've been true to our word this time. I want to make a correction. I said that John Favreau was the director of Swingers. No, it was actually directed by Doug Lyman. He was, of course, the star. Favreau was. He was the writer. Now, on the show, we were talking about Jeffrey, the giraffe. The Silent Giraffe, although he spoke in the Toys R Us commercials. And I got to wondering, as did some listeners, what of that silence of the giraffes, which would have been a good alternate title. Now, I've been studying cartoon animal stereotypes for quite a while. I like to think that I'm a a, a very important thinker uh, on the issue of cartoon animal stereotypes. For instance, I find that the vast majority of cartoon hippos are female. Let's think about it. You've got Gloria, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, in all the Madagascar movies. Uh, If you remember the TV show from my youth, the New Zoo Review, here are three of the characters. So Henrietta there was a hippo, Henrietta Hippo. And I think this might go back to the dancing ballerinaed hippos from Fantasia. But there's something about hippos that convinces the auteurs of cartoons or children's shows to cast them as female. But what about giraffes? What do they sound like? Well, again, let's return to the Madagascar movie. There you had Melman. He was a giraffe and he was voiced by David Schwimmer. So he sounded adnoidal, a bit Jewy. Although in the movie Sing, Wes Anderson, the fussy director Wes Anderson voiced the giraffe character of Daniel. I think this all goes to say that giraffes, the actual vocal quality of a giraffe is so unknown, or as I expressed, thought to be so non-present that you could just cast it in any way possible. But then I did some research and it turns out that giraffes do make a noise. They have this 13-foot-long trachea. And if you know anything about tracheas or vibrations, when you have something that long with a lot of wind rushing through it, it's going to create, actually, a low rumble. And Wired Magazine put on its site a sound clip of what a giraffe actually sounds like. Uh, We'll boost the volume because it's pretty soft, but this is what it sounds like. So you know what that reminded me of? It reminded me of the instrument called the alphorn. You perhaps know, not the alphorn, it's the alphorn. You probably know it from the Ricola commercial, but uh, it, it can play a high F note or it can 
do a low rumble, which sounds like this. And it makes sense. The actual physical structure of the outpouring, imagine a giraffe lying on its back, getting some sun, you know, that looks, the neck and head area might look a little like an, an outpouring. By the way, did you know that giraffes, even without their neck, would still be the tallest animal? How about that? Just at the shoulders, with their little giraffe heads atop teeny necks. They probably all die out because they couldn't get those leaves, but they're still the tallest animal at the shoulders, and they have that prodigious neck. It's almost like overkill. Well, that's what giraffes sound like, and I'll end with a quote from Christopher Basu of the Royal Veterinary College of the University of London. He says, To my knowledge, no one has ever measured airspeed when giraffes exhale. It would be a fantastic experiment. You would have to persuade a giraffe to blow into a straw. I got a letter from uh, Juanita Cutler of Three Churches, West Virginia, which to my mind is at least one church too many. And she writes, Mike, if this is you, it is. Can you please tell me where you or your family are from? Because you remind me of Congressman Luis Gutierrez, and I believe he is from Puerto Rico. Well, I, Juanita, I am from Long Island, which is the Puerto Rico of just off the coast of New York. And also Luis Gutierrez is not from Puerto Rico. He was born in Illinois. But do I sound like him? Here is a short clip of Congressman Luis Gutierrez, recently announced resigning. Congressman also today announced that uh, he was in a violation of an ethics committee rule and has to repay about $9,700. Anyway, here is Luis Gutierrez speaking on the floor of Congress. Clearly, if anyone has firsthand knowledge of Mexican immigrants working in the United States, it should be the owner of a hotel, casino, office building, or a clothing line. But Trump doesn't seem to be basing his opinions about Mexican immigrants on personal knowledge. And I have to say, Juanita, some people have pointed out that I may sound like Aaron Sorkin, who, like me, is from a suburb of New York. I sound nothing like Luis Gutierrez. That was just about the craziest sound alike I've ever heard. Ashley Kelly writes in and says, had a very funny moment listening to at Pescami, that's my spiel this morning getting ready. My four-year-old overheard it from the next room. I was talking about Stormy Daniels, and I said, let's assume Stormy can talk. And her four-year-old became very concerned because their dog's name is Stormy. And to this, I can only say, Ashley Kelly, whose Twitter handle is Dark and Stormy's mom, you've got to not let your kids listen to the gist. Because one time, it's a misimpression about Stormy. Another time, it's me cursing up a blue streak. Please quarantine the children. Bill Buttrick writes in on Twitter as I was talking about some of the uh, some of the storms that have been named. You get your Quinn, your Riley, your your Toby, and I was saying every bit of weather is now going to get a proper name. Cloudy with a fourteen percent chance of hail. Dave. So he writes in in poem form. Cold spell Sadie was a harsh little lady, but January thaw Thor tore through. The Frozen Shore. Just try saying that. January Thaw Thor tore through the Frozen Four. And those were good. Those were excellent reachings out to me on Twitter. But they're not lobsters. Because the lobster of the Antan Twig is given to the reader, the interactorer, the Facebook poster, who most educates me, uh, schools me, delights me. And it goes to the author of this email. I'm writing with observations about points you recently raised concerning federal government procurement. 
I'm a government contracts lawyer in D.C. It's somewhat exciting. (laughs) Emphasis on the somewhat. First, he uh, directs me, if I'm more interested in the Ben Carson $31,000 hutch, shall we call it a scandal? He notes that the T4C scenario is technical and complex, but he would point me to 48 CFR 52.2482EG. Thanks, dude. Then he told me about Dr. Tiffany Brown. She was the person who got government contracts that she could not in any way fulfill about making ready-to-eat meals to be delivered to Puerto Rico suffering from Hurricane Maria. He notes, and no one else does, so I guess this is news, that FEMA formally suspended both Dr. Brown and her company, Tribute Contracting LLC, and says that being suspended from government contracting means the good doctor, I disagree with that assessment, not only is she not good, she's kind of a fake doctor, is prohibited from bidding on or receiving any federal contracts for as long as the suspension remains pending. It's also worth noting that Dr. Brown was previously debarred from the government printing office for a three-year period or ordinarily, a debarment applies government-wide, which would have averted the fiasco, but under the government printing office's idiosyncratic debarment regulations, the prohibition was effective within the GPO only. Look, I know our journalists are taxed, but I think we need to study the GPO's idiosyncratic debarment regulations. That's pretty interesting. So it's good that Tiffany Brown is out of circulation. She was one of these miscreants who popped to the surface for a brief time, and I'm sure will be lost to history. Sort of the Eugene Walkenfuss of 2018. You could look it up. So to you, writer of this letter, and who was it? I'll quote one other part of the letter. I'd appreciate you not sharing my name. To you, phantom government procurement lawyer, I give you the lobstar of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who for obvious reasons also asked that his name not be used. Daniel Schrader helped produce the show today. He was the guy playing the Alphorn, which we booked for Studio B, but the mouthpiece had to be situated in Studio A. Mary Wilson is the gist's senior producer. She was on assignment. She was out of pocket. And as a belted jumpsuit enthusiast, she was also out of pockets. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's fiddled with the budget to buy a shotgun mic strong enough to test the esophagus of a giraffe. The gist. The gist died broken and penniless, having forever been thwarted in its attempt to get a giraffe to blow into a straw. And in our final scene, as the protagonist... Giraffe expert Dr. Pesca makes one last gasp to interest the giraffe in a straw. He clutches his heart and kneels over. And as the credits begin to roll, we see the curious giraffe pick up the straw in his mouth and place it in the lemonade that the brave camelopardist had been drinking and suck up the entirety of its contents. And then the giraffe ambles away as the screen fades to black. Oomperu dapperu dupperu, and thanks for listening.